Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They want out from us. They want out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption North Mountain. I'm glad to be here with you today. Uh, my name is Xavier. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time here, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'd love if you'd be willing just to say hi to me after the service today. Uh, our lead pastor, Josh, is just getting back into town, and he decided to give me the Antichrist passage. <laughs> so here we are. You know, if you have anything uh, from today's sermon that might be offensive to you or you disagree with, don't worry, you can just email me at joshuawatt at gmail.com. I'm just joking. No, I'm actually really excited about the passage today. As I've been preparing, um, I think it has a lot more relevance than maybe we could see just at face value. I think that it speaks to the life of our church and even this culture currently. So I'm excited to jump into this and see what it is that John is communicating to the church and what he's communicating to us as well. So let's just pray and let's prepare our hearts for what God wants to teach us in this time. So let's pray together. So Father, um, we thank you. We thank you for your love towards us. Jesus, thank you for your finished work, that you are continuing to do work in us and through us. Holy Spirit, thank you for your anointing. God, would we depend on you during this time? Would you reveal truth to us? God, would you continuously lead us towards dependence on your word and on you, Holy Spirit. You, I've worn glasses, but I didn't always need them. Matter of fact, when I was a little kid, uh, I would try, I really wanted glasses, so I would pretend and fake the eye exams to try to get glasses. So I'd be sitting there, they'd be like, what letter is that? I'm like, is it an A? They're like, it's a Q, and we know you're faking. So <laughs> I never got past the eye exams until finally I, I did need some glasses. It was for the back of the class. But I didn't wear them all the time. Until one day I was driving to an eye exam, and when I got there, they asked me a question that I did not expect. They tested my eyes and they said, how did you get here? And I was like, I drove. And they just looked back at me, they're like, you can't do that anymore without a license. <laughs> and now, you know, I found out on my license, it actually says that I can't drive without, so I got pulled over and that. But I go back to the eye, uh, uh, eye doctor, where they actually had my prescription in a pair of glasses for me. And I made a decision at that time, I knew the only way I wear glasses while driving was if I wore glasses all the time. So I got my glasses, I put them on, 
And I remember walking outside, and I looked up to the sky, and I was like, whoa, the clouds. Like, they have ends to them. <laughs> like, I thought there was clouds this whole time. I started driving, like, those green signs. They have words on them. <laughs> no, that was a joke. But, uh, but I really was able to see things more clearly after getting glasses. I was able to actually see things the way that they were, the way I was supposed to see them. I was able to see reality. I was able to see clearly. And I think about us just with the faith. When we embrace Jesus, when we live out our vision of all of life being all for Jesus, God actually gives us a new lens for life to see reality through. And these lens consist of his word and his spirit. So the word being the living word, Jesus, but also the written word that we have access to, but also the Holy Spirit that anoints us. And when we get this lens, we're actually able to see reality clearly. But what that means is when we take off that lens, it actually gives room for the enemy to deceive us. Uh, whenever we take this lens off, we lack the, uh, the ability to see reality clearly. And we give room for deception from the enemy. Without the clarity and vision from the word and the spirit, we are more open to deception. And this is what John is actually writing about today. John continues to write in a way that Josh explained last week with encouragement and warning at the same time to encourage us as believers and to lovingly warn us. And in today's passage, his focus is how we as believers are to protect ourselves from deception. So the big idea today is this. Dependence on word and spirit protects us from deception. It's as simple as that. Dependence on word and spirit is what protects us from deception. So let's just start with verse 18 to see how it is that John actually gets here. Verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So he starts off this statement, uh, as he has been a lot during this whole book, is children. He's continuing to display his loving approach to the people that he really cares about. Like, one thing I want you to know is when he's writing all these things, there's times where maybe he says things that feel offensive or pushy, but his desire and his heart and main goal is to be a really caring mentor in the faith and lead people to have the same depth that he has with the real Jesus. He says, children. And he starts talking to them now about some things that I would call currently Christian buzzwords. So the first one is, it is the last hour. So what does he say? He says, it is the last hour, and then he repeats it. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. You know, I'm not the oldest person in the room, but ever since I've been alive, it feels like the world is going to end, like, every five years. It's like 1994, Harold Camping, the world's good. This is the year. Doesn't happen. Y2K, 2000, the world's going to, everything's going to shut down. It doesn't happen. 2008, the world's supposed to end. 2012, the world's supposed to end. 2020, the world's supposed to end. And then things happen, like there's a doomsday clock, 90 seconds until midnight. There's grasshoppers outside, it's the end times! Microchips, self-driving cars, like I was thinking the other day, have you ever seen those self-driving cars? Oh no, my wife was like, there's nobody in that car. 
you know what? It's the end time. <laughs> like, this is what we constantly feel all the time. So is this what John is saying? It's the last hour. It's going to happen any moment. So I just want to get some clarity of what he means. The last hour is simply this. I'll explain why it's this. The last hour is the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. It's the last hour. Jesus rising up to be at the right hand of the Father. Between that and his second coming is the last hour. Now, why is that the last hour? Well, just to give some clarity to that, it's because this is the final stage in history before the fulfillment of all things in Jesus' return. So no, we're not in the time where we're waiting for the Savior to come. We're not in the time when Jesus comes in the flesh. We're in the time right now after he's resurrected and ascended into heaven, waiting for his second return. So as he uh, explains this, it is the last hour. We must know that we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. It might be in the next three months. It might be in the next 150 years. It might be in the next 2,000 years. But what it means is, as believers, we must be aware of this reality. Jesus is going to return. We are in the last hour. So we must hold on to him until his second coming. And how do we know it's the last hour? John says that the evidence of this, and here we go, is that Antichrist is coming and many Antichrists have so let's take a moment just to talk about antichrist and antichrist. So this is a pretty uh, loaded word, especially in Christianity. So depending on when you became a believer, uh, in the Christian culture, the term antichrist has gained a lot of traction for some time. When people hear this word, the first thing that comes to mind is often an end-time antagonist or end-time enemy against Jesus. And then in recent times, people have associated this term with either political figures terrorists, or sometimes celebrities. So people say uh, Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist, or Bin Laden, the Antichrist. Or people say the Pope, Antichrist, or Hitler. And then people moved on to like political figures. Oh man, Hillary Clinton, for sure the Antichrist. Or Obama, see his middle name, Hussein, Antichrist. Like people, and then people moved on to celebrities. Like Madonna for like a minute was the Antichrist. Uh, Dennis Rodman was the Antichrist. So my question is, is this what John meant? Like, was he picturing Dennis Rodman stacking up rebounds and like, he's like WWE with his piercing all stuff, dyed hair, he's like, that guy's for sure the Antichrist. You see how many rebounds he's getting? He is empowered by the spirit of the Antichrist. I don't think this is what John meant. I want to give some clarity around this. So first thing is this, just to give clarity of the New Testament, the term Antichrist uh, it's only used four times in the New Testament. Three of the times are in this book. The other time is in 2 John. So often when we hear the word Antichrist, we actually associate it with a different term that's used in the Bible. It shows up in 2 Thessalonians, in Revelation, and sometimes people go back to Daniel. And what they're associating with is this, what we call an end-time antagonist, a figure empowered by Satan who functions as an enemy of Jesus Christ and the church. Now, I think that this is a true thing that seems like is showing up in the Bible, but it doesn't seem like the Bible uses the term Antichrist to describe that. A matter of fact, we're actually going through Revelation as our next book, and we're going to have time to focus specifically on what this end-time antagonist is. But John's focus isn't even Antichrist. Like, he makes a comment, 
Antichrist is coming. He makes that comment, but he moves on to something else that he wants to focus on. Many Antichrists have already come. So who are these Antichrists that he is talking about? So let's just talk about these for a moment. So the term literally means against Christ or in place of Christ. That's literally what Antichrist means. So Antichrists are those people who oppose Jesus Christ and his teaching. Those who in one way or another were denying the true identity of Jesus and the fact of God's saving activity mediated to the world through him. The title that he's using, or the phrase, was not meant to be offensive, but it was meant to be descriptive of what these people were doing. So think about current times, if I were to say something like, my uncle is the Antichrist, you're like, whoa, like kind of offensive. Like he's not trying to make an offensive term. For us, there's been a lot of cultural context that have brought emotions or feelings with that word, but what he is trying to do is just be descriptive of what these people are doing. So just to give a, a clear description for me is this. Antichrists are a tool of the enemy to deceive Christians using lies and isolation. Antichrists are a tool of the enemy to deceive Christians using lies and isolation. This is what John is specifically talking about. So John now kind of says, what's the evidence of this? He uses the word to give clarity and warning to the audience. And he specifically says they have one goal, one strategy, and there's one result. So what's the goal of the Antichrist? Verse 26 says this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Like the one goal, the enemy is using these antichrists specifically to deceive Christians. Specifically about the identity of Jesus and who he is. And how is it that they do this? There's one strategy. They do this through lies. Verses 21 through 23. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So they were specifically uh, spreading lies throughout the church about who Jesus was. And they were often believable lies. Things that people would be deceived by and hold on to. So this is one strategy, one goal, and then there's just one result. This is what he says. He says, verse 19, they, the antichrists, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So these people that were used to deceive through lies, the way that the evidence was displayed that they were not part of the communion of the church, was that they would leave the church. Whether it was through orthodoxy, they would hold on to these truths that they believe in that weren't actually true and aligned with Jesus, or they would depart from the body of Christ. And there are ways that that verse can be used like incorrectly. Like That doesn't mean that if someone leaves Redemption North Mountain one day, they're the Antichrist. I knew it. Sally, she's the Antichrist. She hasn't been here for four weeks. Like That's not the goal of that is trying to communicate that these people that left orthodoxy, left their faith in Jesus, and started holding on to these specific truths were against Christ 
spreading lies and deception within the church. So let me just kind of play out how this works during his time. This is the reason he's writing this. Uh, Josh keeps on explaining that there were these people called the Gnostics. Let me give clarity on what they actually believed. So the Gnostics at this time believed that the body was evil. They believed that they had a special revelation from God, and part of that special revelation was that the body was evil. So they spread a lie. Jesus was really God, but he was not really human. That's what they would say. They said maybe he showed up like in a shell of a body, or it was like a fake body, but he wasn't really human. And John is writing this to say, like, think about the beginning of the, the whole book. I saw Jesus, I heard him, I touched him. He was real. And he really bled for our sins. And he really died. And he really rose from the grave. He was actually embodied. He doesn't want the people to fall for this lie. The other lie that would have been at that time is this lie called adoptionism. It was this idea that Jesus was just a carpenter, just a man doing his thing. And then he gets baptized by John the Baptist and the father adopts him as his son. Which would have been another lie. And these people might have believed it. So John steps on the scene to say, hey, there's these antichrists, people that are opposed to Jesus, spreading deception and lies. I need you to notice them so that you do not fall for the deception. It's really important for John to write this because the deceptions were believable. I think what made it easy for believers to fall into this deception was the sincerity of the people and the subtleness of deception. So I think that these people were used by the enemy, but I think they themselves were actually sincere. Like I think about, uh, just for a moment, like I think about little kids that learn like words and they start saying things with confidence, but you're like, you're not saying the right thing. Like I think about one time I'm at like a family dinner, and one of my relatives, young kid, we're eating Papa John's, and he says, hey, can you pass me the Papa John cheese? I go, what in the world is he talking about? He's like, right there, the Papa John cheese. And I'm like, do you mean the Parmesan cheese? <laughs> so like the kind older relative I am, I pick up the Parmesan cheese, and I show him, and I say, I just want to show you something. This right here says Parmesan. And he just in confidence, no, it's Papa John cheese. <laughs> So I don't argue with him, I give him his Papa John cheese. So, like I think about kids when they start learning things like this, there's just so much confidence, there's sincerity, but it doesn't mean that what they're saying is true. Like sincerity and confidence doesn't actually equal truth. And I think about all these people that were called antichrists. Like just think about for a moment, the people that were opposed to Jesus, most of them, not all, but many of them were actually sincere. There was the Pharisees, Many of them were sincere in their faith. And they were sincere when they believed that Jesus was going to corrupt the temple and the faith. There were some Sadducees that were really sincere. There were these Judaizers that were telling people, hey, if you're Christian, you also need to become Jewish. But it was because they really believed that was true. So these antichrists are often sincere people, used, though, as tools to deceive believers specifically about who Jesus is. So first, the sincerity. The second thing is that deception is always really subtle. I was just at a camp for five days uh, up north. I was preaching for these high schoolers. Uh, I'm very happy to be home because there's a lot of bugs there. and I don't do well with bugs. 
um, all my manliness just goes away. Like I start screaming and just, I, I will leave Anna and Dom to deal with bugs. But, so, uh, while I was there, one of the analogies I used for the students was we played Two Truths and a Lie. And I was telling them, hey, I'm going to show you how to play Two Truths and a Lie really well. So I told them my three statements. Here were my three statements. One, I once swam with dolphins in Mexico. Two, I once met Steph Curry at Coldstone. And three, I once met Justin Bieber at a church. So they're all freaking out. Which one is it? Which one is it? I asked them, do you think it's a dolphin one? Only like three of them thought it was a dolphin one. How many of you think I didn't meet Steph Curry? Like, there's a lot more. I'm like, how many of you didn't think I met Justin Bieber? Like, there's no way. So I started telling the stories. I went to Mexico with Anna, and while we were there, one of the activities was dolphin swimming. And it was like, it was actually pretty cool. You like lay on your stomach, and the dolphins pick you up by your feet. I'm like, whoa. So they're like, oh, cool, that's crazy, that's true. I told the second story. I once was in California. And I walk into this church, and Justin Bieber comes out of nowhere. Like, this is a real story. And then out of nowhere, me and him are in the same room. I get starstruck. He walks by me. I grab his shoulder, and I just go. But I'm too nervous to say So that's me meeting Justin Bieber again. And then I told him the last story. Uh, I'm walking out of Cold Stone one day, and I see somebody walk in, and I follow them to see if it's who I think it is. And it wasn't Steph Curry, it was LeBron James. And they're like, whoa, you met LeBron James? That's crazy. I also got starship with him, I just stared at him like this. <laughs> and, but I told them, what makes two truths and a lie work really well is when you tell something really close to the truth. Like you just switch one little detail. It really was Coldstone, it really was an NBA star, and I really met them. It just wasn't Steph Curry. And this is what makes deception really hard to actually point out. These deceptions are always close to the truth, and that's why John is so concerned. Deception is never obvious. It is patient and believable. It's close enough to the truth for us to be convinced. It's just the smallest tweaks. And for all of us, we have to know we have potential to be deceived, just like the people John is writing to. We also have potential to be deceived. So my question for us is this, what is it that actually deceives us? If this is what John is writing to the church, hey, watch out for these antichrists because there is potential for you to be deceived, what is it that's actually deceiving us? I think about a few different categories. The first one is the religions that consider themselves Christians but don't actually believe in Christ the way he revealed himself. So I think about Mormonism, for example, uh, they would say that Jesus was created. He was a literal son of the Father who displayed to us the way we can progress to be with God and become like him, and that there's this extra revelation in the Book of Mormon. So let's be clear. Very sincere people. They're loving people. They have a real desire to know God. But it's these subtle twists in the gospel and the truth that are hard to even point out. I think about Jehovah Witness. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's the main way that we're deceived here. One thing that's maybe a little closer to home is the pendulum swing between legalism and not caring about sin. So like on one side, some of us could be like, you know what, I need to keep on earning my way to God. But the deception there is that Jesus didn't actually take care of all of it on the cross. And some of us could swing on the other side and say, well, Jesus on the cross, I can do whatever I want. 
But Jesus is actually calling us and leading us into a new life. So for some of us, we could be caught there and be deceived through that. But once again, I don't know if that's the closest thing to home for us. I think that the biggest deception in the world currently is that the world is convincing us that we can curate our own version of Jesus. Like we live in a world right now that convinces us that we don't have limits. Like our world right now is pretty foreign to history. We could travel anywhere in the world right now as long as we have access to a plane and have enough money. And many of us are not limited to an office or a particular area to do our work. We can communicate with anyone, anywhere, at any time with our phones. There is no limit to who has a platform. And in our current culture, the limits of sex or our bodies don't really exist as well. Which leads people to curate the life that they desire. People have the freedom in our country to be who they want to be, to live where they want to live, to work where they want to work, and to do or participate in whatever it is they want to participate in. This isn't me trying to diss anyone or saying, look at the world. This is just me saying, this actually kind of makes sense if we have no limits. Like, people are sincere, and because of the lack of limits, we want to shape our lives in a way that makes us the most happy, or the most successful, or the most satisfied, or the most filled with pleasure. And we have to see how this enters into the church. Like, this is just me personally. I don't personally know too many people that hate Jesus. Most people just tell me, well, that's good for you. Like, you found a belief to settle in. Or other people, there's people that just love Jesus, but it's a Jesus that fits into their curation. So here's like an extreme example, but this is the reason why we can see people storming the Capitol, and when they're in the Capitol, they're praying to Jesus, saying, thank you, Jesus, for this victory. And on the other side, we can see people go through extreme procedures to change their gender and say, thank you, Jesus. Let's go a little less extreme. This is why on The Bachelor, you can see fantasy suites. The Bachelor is about to like sleep with each one of these people, and they're praying to Jesus before, help me find the right fiance. And on the other side, you can see street preachers screaming at people, you sinners, you're going to hell. And they can say, we're doing this for Jesus. Or, I hear people say sometimes, the only way to vote if you love Jesus is Republican. And I hear other people say, the only way to vote if you love Jesus is Democrat. Like, many people worship Jesus. The question is not, do people worship Jesus? The question is, which Jesus do people worship? Is it the Jesus that aligns with them on everything they think? Is it the American Jesus that's fighting for our government? Is it the Jesus that's primarily concerned for fighting for the LGBTQ movement? Is it the Jesus that gives us a life of prosperity and leads us to the most successful life? Is it the Jesus that died so that we can live whatever life we want? Is it the Jesus that's just added to our life and doesn't ask anything of us? Or is it the real, embodied, historical, biblical, fully God, fully man revealed in the word who bled on the cross who resurrected from the dead, who advocates for us, who asks us, will you follow me? Will you align your life with mine? Will you make me Lord of your life? Is it the true Jesus? Like Josh said last week, the biggest temptation of the world is nobody tells me what to do. But Jesus enters the scene and says, 
Actually, would you submit your life to me? And as Christians, we say, yes, I will do anything you tell me to do. Truth is not found in sincerity, but truth is found in reality. We do not worship Jesus because it's the best religion. We don't worship Jesus because we agree with everything he says. He's often going to say things that we don't agree with. We don't worship Jesus because he makes our life easier. We worship Jesus because he is the truth. And truth is found in him. And for us to live in that truth and to prevent ourselves from deception, we must be willing to depend on the work of the word and the spirit. Let's just read the rest of this passage and see what John says. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the beginning, or sorry, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is a promise that he makes to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So how is it that we are to protect ourselves from deception? We depend on the word of the spirit. And we do this by the word that keeps being used here, abiding in the word and truth that's been revealed to us the real Jesus that was revealed, and the spirit who was given to us. But what does that word abide actually mean? So the word abide means to remain in or to tether to. So to remain in or to tether to. And here's the only picture I could get for this. It's kind of a gross one, but I'm just going to go with it. So uh, I keep on hearing about these like random weird fears that people have. My wife's random fear is a group of white cars. Like, I don't, I don't know why, but if we're driving and, like, four white cars are, like, on the other side, she's like, like, it's so grosser. She can't even look at it. There was a couple that came over. Their weird fear is uh, trypophobia. Have you heard of this? Well, it's like the fear of close holes, like sponges or bubbles or strawberries. And I, I was asking, like, wait, what? Like, I looked up a picture. I was like, like this? They're like, oh, my gosh, like, don't show me that. That's disgusting. I was like, whoa, I didn't know it was that serious. There's another word fear I heard, like wet, cold surfaces, as one guy said. Like if it's wet and he's like, oh. Like, so there's this, this, someone else said that their fear is a rat king. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this, a rat king? It's a, it's a real thing. It's kind of weird, but it is a real thing. So this is what it is, okay? Imagine you have a rat infestation. And in your guest room, there's a group of 10 rats all eating some food. They're all eating like cheese or something like that. And you walk into your guest room, and all the rats notice that you're walking in, so they go to scatter. And there's this weird thing that happens. I don't know why, but right when they go to scatter, it's like this perfect timing for all their tails to get stuck together. So I'm not going to show you a real picture, just a cartoon picture, but this is what it looks like. So all these rats are running off and their tails get stuck. Uh, don't look it up unless you're ready to get grossed out. The real picture's kind of nasty. But this is a real thing that happens, and it's called a rat king. But all their tails are stuck like this, and they're like this for the rest of their lives. 
there's no way for them to separate from each other. The rest of the lives, they actually live like this. They try to survive, but they will inevitably die like this. They are forever tethered together. And I think this is the picture. It's kind of a gross one, but I think this is the picture for us. Like Jesus is saying, I want you to abide in me. I want you to literally tether yourself to me. Like for the rest of your life, I want you to be eternally connected with me forever. We are to, we can take this picture down now. I feel like it's just like, <laughs> that was, it was like the side of our eyes, like that's just there. <laughs> the call from Jesus is for us to literally tether ourselves to the good news of the gospel. To tether ourselves to the truth revealed in God's word to us. To tether ourselves to the real, embodied, historical Jesus revealed in the Word. We trust the witnesses of the apostles and look back to who Jesus was and is and what he's calling us to. And we tether ourselves to that. We tether ourselves to the Father through the work of Jesus. And we receive, this is what the Word is saying, we receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit in order to do this. It is the work of the Spirit that opens our eyes to the gospel initially and continues to show us this truth. It is the Spirit that makes you and me holy and set apart. It is the Spirit that convicts us and leads us and guides us. And it's the anointing that gives you and me the power to persevere in the truth of the gospel. And we tether ourselves to the Spirit and to the Word that revealed, us, revealed to us Jesus. And I hope that, and this is like the hope, this should be encouraging to us because this is the one thing that Jesus actually desires from us, to abide in him. Jesus has no ulterior motives. He is not trying to get anything out of us. His desire is simply that we would abide in him and he would abide in us and that we would be connected to who he really is and how he has revealed himself. So how is it that we live this out in our daily lives? How do we prevent ourselves from the deception that's found in this world? We do this by depending on the word and spirit, and here's just a practical way. We go back to the fundamentals. We live this out by relying on the fundamentals of our faith. Gathering weekly together, the church. Like we continue to work this out together. We're all in different places in our faith, but we encourage each other, we confess to each other, we uplift each other, we cry with each other, we rejoice with each other, and we do this constantly. We fill ourselves with God's word by daily reading of the Bible. David Jackman said, we shall never outgrow the need of his word as our daily diet any more than we outgrow the need for daily food. We just rely on his truth to fill us and to equip us. And then we do all of this in relying on God through living in communion with him through prayer. We just constantly pray through all things. Not like written prayers or like proving to him. Just constantly lifting our voice up to God and listening to him. So with those things, we run to those things knowing that we actually have a desire to know Jesus for who he really is. Because it's that Jesus that saved us. It's that Jesus that's advocating for us. And it's that Jesus that will return for us and fulfill all things. 
With all that being said, let me just pray for us. As the worship team comes up, let's just pray together. So, Father, um, I just pray. We, we know that there's potential for deception to creep into our lives. Like, there's ways in my life, as I was preparing for this, that I noticed that I get deceived. And I think that's true for us. God, would you please help us rely, Holy Spirit, on you and your anointing? Would you help us rely, Jesus, on you and what you've done for us? Would you help us rely on your written word to reveal your truth to us, God? And please, as we continue in the faith, would you keep us and would you help us have the ability to persevere with you, empowered by you, Holy Spirit? So we say this in the name of Jesus. Amen.